0: we're back we just finished day five of the josh duggar trial the defense rest their case and the prosecution called agent vitrell back to the witness stand we are now about to start day six and you already know so here's the disclaimer this is not going to be a 100 word for word accurate representation of every single thing said and done in the courtroom but rather me reading to you guys directly from my notes that i took while attending the trial to the best of my ability let's go We start day six of the Josh Duggar trial with Judge Brooks reading the jury instructions. Members of the jury, the instructions I gave you at the beginning of the trial and during the trial remain in effect. I now give you some additional instructions. You must, of course, continue to follow the instructions I gave you earlier, as well as those I give you now you must not single out some instructions and ignore others, because all are important. This is true even though some of those I gave you at the beginning of the trial are not repeated here. The instructions I am about to give you now, as well as those I gave you earlier, are in writing and will be available to you in the jury room. I emphasize, however, that this does not mean they are more important than my earlier instructions. Again, all instructions, whenever given, whether in writing or not, must be followed. It is your duty to find from the evidence what the facts are. You will then apply the law as I give it to you to those facts. You must follow my instructions on the law, even if you thought the law was different or should be different. Do not allow sympathy or prejudice to influence you. The law demands of you a jury verdict, unaffected by anything except the evidence, your common sense, and the law as I give it to you. I have mentioned the word evidence. The evidence, in this case, consists of the testimony of witnesses, the documents, and other things received as exhibits, and the facts that have been stipulated. This is formally agreed to by the parties. You may use reason and common sense to draw deductions or conclusions from facts which have been established by the evidence in the case. Certain things are not evidence. I will list those things again for you now. Statements, arguments, questions, and comments by lawyers representing the parties in the case are not evidence. Objections are not evidence. Lawyers have a right to object when they believe something is improper. You should not be influenced by the objection. If I sustained an objection to a question, you must ignore the question and must not try to guess what the answer might have been. Testimony that I struck from the record or told you to disregard is not evidence and must not be considered. Anything you saw or heard about this case outside the courtroom is not evidence. Finally, if you were instructed that some evidence was received for a limited purpose only, you must follow that instruction. You will remember that a summary was admitted in evidence. Governments Exhibit 85. You may use the summary as evidence. It is for you to decide how much weight, if any, you will give to the summary. In making that decision, you should consider all of the testimony you heard about the way in which it was prepared. Certain demonstrative aids have been shown to you in order to help explain the expert testimony, records, and other underlying evidence in the case. Those demonstrative aids are used for convenience. They are not themselves evidence or proof of any facts. In deciding what the facts are, you may have to decide what testimony you believe and what testimony you do not believe. You may believe all of what a witness said or only part of it or none of it. In deciding what testimony to believe, consider the witness's intelligence the opportunity the witness had to have seen or heard the things testified about, the witness's memory, any motives that witness may have for testifying a certain way, the manner of the witness while testifying, whether that witness said something different at an earlier time, the general reasonableness of the testimony, and the extent to which the testimony is consistent with any evidence that you believe. In deciding whether or not to believe a witness, keep in mind that people sometimes hear or see things differently and sometimes forget things. You need to consider, therefore, whether a contradiction is an innocent misrecollection or lapse of memory or an intentional falsehood. And that may depend on whether it has to do with an important fact or a small detail. You have heard testimony from persons described as experts. Persons who, by knowledge, skill, training, education, or experience, have become expert in some field, may state their opinion on matters in that field, and may also state their reasons for their opinion. Expert testimony should be considered just like any other testimony. You may accept it or reject it and give it as much weight as you think it deserves, considering the witness's education and experience, the soundness of the reason given for the opinion, the acceptability of the methods used, and all of the other evidence in the case. The indictment in this case charges Mr. Duggar with two different crimes. Count 1 charges that Mr. Duggar committed the crime of receipt of child pornography in violation of federal law. Count 2 charges that Mr. Duggar committed the crime of possession of child pornography in violation of federal law. Mr. Duggar has pleaded not guilty to these charges. The indictment is simply the document that formally charges Mr. Duggar with the crimes for which he is on trial. The indictment is not evidence. At the beginning of the trial, I instructed you that you must presume Mr. Duggar to be innocent. Thus, he began the trial with a clean slate with no evidence against him. The presumption of innocence alone is sufficient to find Mr. Duggar not guilty and can be overcome only if the government proved during the trial, beyond a reasonable doubt, each element of the crime charged. Keep in mind that each count charges a separate crime. You must consider each count separately and return a verdict for each count please also remember that only Mr. Duggar, not anyone else, is on trial here, and that Mr. Duggar is only on trial for the two crimes charged and not for anything else. There is no burden on Mr. Duggar to prove that he is innocent. Instead, the burden of proof remains on the government throughout the trial. Accordingly, The fact that Mr. Duggar did not testify must not be considered by you in any way or even discussed in arriving at your verdict. You heard evidence that the defendant may have previously committed another offense of child molestation. The defendant is not charged with this other offense. You may consider this evidence only if you unanimously find it is more likely true than not true. You decide that by considering all of the evidence and deciding what evidence is more believable. This is a lower standard of proof than proof beyond a reasonable doubt. If you find that this offense has not been proved, you must disregard it. If you find that this offense has been proved, you may consider it to help you decide any matter to which it is relevant. You should give it the weight and value you believe it is entitled to receive. You may consider the evidence of such other acts of child molestation for its tendency, if any, to show the defendant's propensity to engage in child molestation as well as its tendency, if any, to determine whether the defendant committed the acts charged in the indictment and to determine the defendant's intent. Remember, the defendant is only on trial for the crimes charged. You may not convict a person simply because you believe he may have committed similar acts in the past. The crime of receipt of child pornography, as charged in count one of the indictment, has three elements, which are, First, that between on or about May 14, 2019, and on or about May 16, 2019, Mr. Duggar knowingly received visual depictions of child pornography. Second, Mr. Duggar knew that the visual depictions were of a minor engaging in sexually explicit conduct, and third, that the visual depictions had been mailed, shipped, or transported by any means, including by computer in interstate or foreign commerce. If all of these elements have been proved beyond a reasonable doubt as to Mr. Duggar, then you must find Mr. Duggar guilty of the crime charged under count one. Otherwise, you must find Mr. Duggar not guilty of count one. The crime of possession of child pornography as charged in count two of the indictment has four elements, which are, first, that between on or about May 14th, 2019 and on or about May 16th, 2019, Mr. Duggar knowingly possessed computer files on an HP all-in-one desktop computer that contained multiple visual depictions of child pornography. Second. Mr. Duggar knew that the visual depictions were of a minor engaging in sexually explicit conduct. And third, that Mr. Duggar knew that such items contained child pornography, which involved a prepubescent minor or a minor who had not attained the age of 12 years of age. Fourth, that the HP computer or the computer files containing the visual depictions had been shipped or transported using any means or facility of interstate or foreign commerce, or affected interstate or foreign commerce by any means, including by computer. You have heard evidence of more than one visual depiction involved in the offense. You must agree unanimously that at least one specific visual depiction possessed by Mr. Duggar involved a minor under the age of 12 years old, and that this specific visual depiction was possessed using or affecting interstate or foreign commerce by any means. If all of these elements have been proved beyond a reasonable doubt as to Mr. Duggar, then you must find Mr. Duggar guilty of the crime charged under count two. Otherwise, you must find Mr. Duggar not guilty of this crime under count two. Some of the terms used in the elements of the offenses and elsewhere in these instructions are defined or further explained as follows. Visual depiction As used in these instructions, the term visual depiction includes any photograph, film, video, picture, or computer or computer-generated image or picture, whether made or produced by electronic, mechanical, or other means. Child Pornography The phrase child pornography means any visual depiction of a minor engaging in sexually explicit conduct, where the minor was engaged in the sexually explicit conduct during production of the depiction. Minor. The term minor means any person under the age of 18 years. Sexually explicit conduct. The term sexually explicit conduct means actual or simulated sexual intercourse, including genital, genital, oral, genital, anal, genital, or oral, anal, whether between persons of the same or opposite sex, masturbation, sadistic or masochistic abuse, or lascivious exhibition of the genitals or public area of any person. Lascivious, Whether a visual depiction of the anus, genitals, or public area of any person constitutes a lascivious exhibition requires a consideration of the overall content of the material. You may consider such factors as whether the focal point of the picture is on the minor's anus, genitals, or public area, whether the setting of the picture is sexually suggestive, that is, in a place or pose generally associated with sexual activity, whether the minor is depicted in an unnatural pose or in inappropriate attire considering the age of the minor, whether the minor is fully or partially clothed or nude, whether the picture suggests sexual coyness or a willingness to engage in sexual activity, whether the picture is intended or designed to elicit a sexual response in a viewer, whether the picture portrays the minor as a sexual object and the captions on the pictures. It is for you to decide the weight or lack of weight to be given to any of these factors. A picture need not involve all of these factors to constitute a lascivious exhibition of the genitals or public area. Computer. The term computer as used in this instruction means an electronic, magnetic, optical, electrochemical, or other high-speed data processing device performing logical, arrhythmic, or storage functions and includes any data storage facility or communications facility directly related to or operating in conjunction with such device. But such term does not include an automated typewriter or typesetter, a portable handheld calculator, or other similar devices. Interstate or foreign commerce. The phrase interstate commerce means commerce between any combination of states, territories, and possessions of the United States, including the District of Columbia. The phrase foreign commerce means commerce between any state, territory, or possession of the United States and a foreign country. The term commerce includes, among other things, travel, trade, transportation, and communication. Images transmitted or received over the internet have moved in interstate or foreign commerce. It is for you to determine, however, if the HP computer had been shipped or transported using any means or facility of interstate or foreign commerce, or if the computer files containing the visual depictions had been transmitted or received over the Internet. Proof of Intent or Knowledge Intent or knowledge may be proved like anything else. You may consider any statements made and acts done by the defendant and all the facts and circumstances and evidence which may aid in the determination of the defendant's knowledge or intent. You may, but are not required to, Infer that a person intends the natural and probable consequences of acts knowingly done or knowingly omitted. Possession The law recognizes several kinds of possession. A person may have actual possession or constructive possession. A person may have sole or joint possession. A person who knowingly has direct physical control over a thing at any given time is then in actual possession of it. A person who, although not in actual possession, has both the power and the intention at a given time to exercise dominion or control over a thing, either directly or through another person or persons, is then in constructive possession of it. If one person alone has actual or constructive possession of a thing, possession is soul. If two or more persons share actual or constructive possession of a thing, possession is joint. Whenever the word possession has been used in these instructions, it includes actual, as well as constructive possession, and also soul, as well as joint possession. Reasonable doubt is doubt based upon reason and common sense, and not doubt based on speculation. A reasonable doubt may arise from careful and impartial consideration of all the evidence, or from lack of evidence. Proof beyond a reasonable doubt is proof of such a convincing character that a reasonable person, after careful consideration, would not hesitate to rely and act upon that proof in life's most important decisions. Proof beyond a reasonable doubt is proof that leaves you firmly convinced of the defendant's guilt. Proof beyond a reasonable doubt does not mean proof beyond all possible doubt. In conducting your deliberations and returning your verdict, there are certain rules you must follow. I will list those rules for you now. First, when you go to the jury room, you must select one of your members as your foreperson. That person will preside over your discussions and speak for you here in court. Second, it is your duty as jurors to discuss this case with one another in the jury room. You should try to reach an agreement, if you can do so, without violence to individual judgment, because a verdict... Whether guilty or not guilty, must be unanimous. Each of you must make your own conscientious decision, but only after you have considered all the evidence, discussed it fully with your fellow jurors, and listened to the views of your fellow jurors. Do not be afraid to change your opinions if the discussion persuades you that you should but do not come to a decision simply because other jurors think it is right or simply to reach a verdict. Third, if the defendant is found guilty, the sentence to be imposed is my responsibility. You may not consider punishment in any way in deciding whether the government has proved its case beyond a reasonable doubt. Fourth, If you need to communicate with me during your deliberations, you may send a note to me through the court security officer, signed by one or more jurors. I will respond as soon as possible, either in writing or orally in open court. Remember that you should not tell anyone, including me, how your votes stand numerically. Fifth, your verdict must be based solely on the evidence and on the law which I have given to you in my instructions. The verdict, whether guilty or not guilty, must be unanimous. Nothing I have said or done is intended to suggest what your verdict should be. That is entirely for you to decide. Finally, the verdict form is simply the written notice of the decision that you reached in this case. You will take these forms to the jury room, and when each of you has agreed on the verdict, your foreperson will fill in the form, sign and date it, and advise the court security officer that you are ready to return to the courtroom. And that concludes Judge Brooks going over the jury instructions with the jury. Now, I'm going to do these last few episodes a little differently than I normally do. So I'm going to end this one right here, having only done Judge Brooks's jury instructions. And I will be back with the next episode covering closing arguments. So hang tight. More trial coverage for the Josh Duggar trial is on its way.